Hey, everybody! It is Yasser! I forgot my line. I'm just kidding. It's Isaiah! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We are from my brother Sneaker, and we've got a little announcement. We are teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you three exclusive uh, episodes. Uh, Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moment from a ton of podcasts and creates playlist clips from a bunch of shows. And you can just search and try them out and find anything that you love. For instance... Oh, yeah. There's a playlist on there uh, called Slice of Life, which is all about like crazy, incredible things that happen to everyday people. Like, I just learned this, bro. I just learned some people pay their bills on time, dog. Oh, is that a thing? Dog, people will have a bill due date and they will pay that bill before then. That's crazy to me. Before then. You know what else is crazy? What? Spook also has a a lot of fun, exclusive content from Feral Audio. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, like our tournament episodes, they're going to be, oh, like, yeah. you know, there's going to be stuff like Sleep With Me, a lot of our, our other great shows here at Feral. You don't want to miss it. Yep. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of my brother's sneakers exclusive Spoke episodes at hearspoke.com slash my brother's sneakers. Model boys, cute boys, round butt boys all day. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high-performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral. And buy some comfortable socks. Feral Audio. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you like my theme music there, that is a band called Les Blanks. Go to the website, their website, lesblanks.com, and check them out. They got a lot of really good stuff. If you haven't listened to my show before, if you're a first-time listener, thank you very much. And welcome to the world of Conversations with Matt Dwyer. The title pretty much says what the show is. I try to have a very free-formed, natural conversation with somebody. Uh, usually someone very fascinating and interesting with great stories and a point of view. And uh, today's guest surely is that um, Mr. Andy Paley, who was a member of the Sidewinders and the Paley Brothers, which recently had a reissue of uh, their a lot of their music. Uh, it's really great stuff. If you uh, wait to the end of the conversation, we'll tag the uh, uh, at the end of the interview conversation thing. We'll be playing one of their songs, um, so you can get a better. If you haven't heard the Paley Brothers, then you get an idea. Uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I, uh, Andy Paley, and I tour together often with uh, David Keckner, and uh, often Andy and I are in towns, and we meander about in record shop and. 
uh, whatnot, and I get to hear Andy's uh, stories and his take on music. There is not anybody I've ever met on the face of the earth who has more of a m- music knowledge than Andy. It's really incredible, and uh, I tried to bring that to uh, this episode. Uh, Andy's really a unique, wonderful guy with a great sense of humor, and um, I'm not saying that because I see him w- weekly and I want him to like me more, uh, but... Uh, it- uh, we m- probably have to do a two-parter of this. I'll have to interview him again because he has so many stories and he's worked with so many people that it, it, we actually couldn't fit it into this episode. So we'll have him back. But uh, no more kissing Andy's ass via the Internet. Uh, let's just get to the conversation. It really is a super great one, and I'm really thankful Andy did it. Uh, thank you for listening. The Paley Brothers, um, which you guys had the reissue. This, do you want to tell a little about the reissue? Yeah, my brother and I had this band in um, the seventies, the the mid seventies, um, and we recorded uh, probably uh, tracks that were released would probably add up to an album's worth of stuff, and then maybe an EP, which would be like four songs. So let's say sixteen released songs, and. Uh, we did some touring, and uh, this is all like 75, 70 to about 77, something like that. And um, had a little bit of notoriety and a little bit of success, and then kind of dissolved. And um, and then um, many, many years went by, and um, some guys, this guy named Gordon Anderson, who has a label called Real Gone Records, contacted me Um about two years ago, 2011, 2012, something like that, and said he thought that the Paley Brothers record should be um, reissued and that uh, he wanted to know if there were any tracks that had never come out. In fact, there there is a huge bunch of stuff we did that never came out. And so uh, I was not really excited about it, but my brother, Jonathan, was really into it. And um, he and another guy, Seymour Stein, who was the president of Sire Records, who signed us originally, they all sort of ganged up on me, Gordon, uh, Seymour, and um, my brother, and said, you guys, you know, you really, Andy, you really should do this. And so I eventually really got into it. And we ended up uh, putting out this record, which is called The Complete, Re- The Paley Brothers, The Complete Recordings, um, which isn't really true. It's not the complete recordings, but it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, 26 songs. It's a lot of stuff. So there's more unreleased stuff on it than I mean previously unreleased stuff than um, than actually released uh, stuff. So um, that's that's a story of that reissue. And we 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 listened to um, lots of uh, mixes of songs that. Um, people uncovered I mean, and people there are live tracks on it from my brother and i were on the road with sean cassidy um and Ma- we played madison square garden we played blue jay stadium in toronto you know huge venues when sean cassidy had uh, top 10 records uh we were the opening act so uh there are recordings of that so there's a couple of tracks from um from that tour and there's all kinds of other unusual stuff on it, but I eventually became enthusiastic about the whole thing. I may sound um, <laughs> kind of boring <laughs> the way I talk, but I'm actually—I uh, really do like it. But you didn't—you—you you didn't like 
in hindsight, you didn't like the original uh, album that you guys put out because I went to listen to it a few months ago, and you're like, "Don't, don't fucking do that." No, I, I, I mean, um, it's not that I didn't like it. It's just that um, this is so much better. We found um, we found alternate mixes, which I have no idea why we didn't use them at the time. It just uh, it puzzles me. But um, I wasn't the producer, uh, and and Earl Mankey, who produced it, is a really nice guy and, and did a great job with us. Uh, but I, I just don't know what people were thinking at the time uh, when I when my brother and I a B some of these things. We're kind of going, wow, why didn't why wasn't that on the album instead of that other mix? You know, things like that. Did but, it have anything to do with like the era of how? Yes, probably. Probably. And that was the thing about us is that the consumers, people who bought records, who this is when people actually bought, really did buy records, um, were a little confused by us because we were getting all this um, teeny bop uh, press. Like we were in 16 Magazine, Tiger Beat, things like that, um, along with Leaf Garrett and, um, and um, you know... Um, what was his name? Uh, you know, Sean Cassidy, and stuff like that. At the same time, we were um, getting um, punk new wave press uh, because we were friends with people like the Ramones. The Ramones made a, a, a single with us, which is on the album too. Um, so people kind of didn't know what to make of us, and also the whole thing at that point, um, the label we signed with was fairly new and up and coming. And in hindsight, people look at the names that uh, were on that label that Seymour Stein signed, and the Paley Brothers are probably the only one that nobody knows. I mean, the list is like the Ramones, the Talking Heads, the Pretenders, um, um, and it goes on and on and on. Um, and, you know, uh, Madonna. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? So, so, so it's like, but when those records first came out, DJs weren't particularly excited that's because it, it's like when you started getting like stuff in 16 magazine was that kind of against what you i mean you didn't know wasn't care, that weird way. no we weren't against it at all i i loved it i we all any anything anybody paid any attention to us we appreciated and and uh in fact playing those shows with sean cassidy was an amazing thrill it was it's incredible to go out in front of an enthusiastic crowd of you know i mean the the, the girls were probably most of them were it was between let's say the ages of 11 and 17 17 would be pretty high age for a, for a Sean Cassidy concert so yeah and then you know you go into Blue Jay Stadium it's like it's like a beehive of screaming kids <laughs> and you know you just, it's, it's very fun it's could, very very fun could they even hear what you were like was I it like that I don't know I don't know I think so I have friends who, who were my age who were there. I was in my 20s. The, f the first time that happened, like, where you step out in front of, what, like 20,000 people, and it's just screaming, like... Yeah. Well, the is interesting that like thing about it is that we didn't have a hit record like Sean Cassidy did, and we were the opening act. So you, we were terrified, actually, to tell you the truth. And some of the record execs were kind of scared, too. Everybody was there. Everybody from Warner Brothers, everybody from Sire, all the... Every, the promotion people, everybody was there. Nobody knew what was going to happen, but we really did well. And so, but it's a tough thing to be an opening act. You know, it's, it's, you don't know, you know, but the thing is, I think the kids were so young that they see two blonde guys come out <laughs> on the stage. Very uh, pretty and handsome. Keep going. <laughs> Rippled abs, succulent lips. I don't even know if succulent is a word. <laughs> so there you go. I mean, and it was just you know, the, I think they were so excited by the event, you know, 
that they screamed and went crazy and everything like that. And um, and then, you know, and then the main event, Sean came out later and got way more applause than we did. But it, we got we did really really well. And then we do like um, autograph sessions at Sam Goody's in Times Square, wherever we went, and and we'd be like, you know, we'd have to show up with guards and stuff like that. It was like it was people when they're under 20 or under 18 i think especially maybe in the 70s or even earlier i don't know if, if it's still true today but are um way more excitable and uh you know they they, they they're also very loyal you know when you when, when you start liking something when you're a little kid you're kind of loyal to it i think most people are you know i i still talk to um some people who were fans of ours who we you know accidentally got to meet later and they uh they're really loyal people you know i mean i i know when i was a kid i i listened to whatever music i listened to i still like it today you know yeah but that music was a lot better than <laughs> well, I, you know i don't know I, it's, it's i mean the music i listened to as a kid i look back and go that was awful like and i'm not loyal to well, say there's, kiss <laughs> <laughs> well there's a lot of people um who are um Older than me, believe it or not, <laughs> not that many, but um, who think that the 1950s um, music, rock and roll, and 1960s music that I listen to is garbage. So, but I mean that's that's because they like stuff from the 30s and 40s. I think it's always. I wanted to ask you because what before you were playing these huge stadiums with like Sean Cassidy, what were you playing? What was it? Clubs, you know, schools, clubs, whatever we could do. We did other. Um, like in Boston, there was a club. I don't know if it's still there called the Paradise, which was prestigious. Um, that would be a good gig for us. Were you based out of Boston or not? Yeah. Um, and, you know, things like that. We, we played CBGB's, which was not prestigious, but uh, is famous now. Was it uh, ever prestigious during its time? I don't think so. It was just a shithole, right? You said it, not me. <laughs> um, I mean, it had like one toilet. Didn't it? Like, it was just like a... That's, I thought I heard it was just like one toilet, and it was like you'd... Like, was, I, hobos not, wouldn't piss not, in it. it. Yeah, it was not... It was on the Bowery, and it, you, you, you knew you were on the Bowery. It was not uh, <laughs> in any way glamorous. My brother um, was there constantly. I didn't go to CBGB's that much. There, it's really funny, because there are photographs of me in CBGB's, which people keep sending me. You know, here's you with the Ramones. Here's you with Patti Smith. Here's you with this band or that band. Here's you with David Johansson. Here's you... With Lou Reed, this is all these photographs from CBGBs, and believe me, I mean I went to CBGBs, but not that much. Um, so I don't know why there are so many photos. <laughs> but uh, my brother really was there all the time, which is interesting because we didn't live in New York. Um, uh, but you know, somehow, I mean, we we had places to crash, and when we were doing whatever we were doing down there. But no, we played there. We played um, I don't know where else. Um, basically. Whatever. I mean, I, I shouldn't say CBGB. What did you ask me if it was prestigious? It wasn't prestigious, but it was trendy to a point. I mean, there there were times where there would be a line or something like that. For like... Um, whoever but, it was, you know. Um, but my brother's band, he put together a little band. God, I feel like this was after the Paley Brothers. And... Um, and they uh, and he was in the Heartbreakers too. My brother briefly. Tom Petty? No, no, no. Oh. <laughs> what do you call it? The Heartbreakers. Isn't that the name of the band? Johnny I, Thunders. Oh yeah, is yeah. it? Not Tom Petty. That was later, I think. I th swear they had the same name. God, that shows how ignorant you and I are. 
<laughs> especially you, because you're supposed to know before you start an interview like this. But uh, no, I researched you, not your brother. Okay. <clears throat> well, no, but I, I anyway. Why was I? Oh yeah, because he played. He was one of the first. My brother was one of the first guys to play that club. As far as you know, people forget the name of that club. CBGB stands for Country Bluegrass and Blues, and Hilly Crystal, who ran the place, um, that was his thing. He was into that kind of music, and I don't know exactly how the whole punk thing started with, you know, um, but but somebody, somebody, I don't know if it was the Ramones or somebody said, okay, this is a good place to play, and, you know, we can get away with playing in this place. Yeah, the Bowery doesn't seem very country music friendly. I, I, I guess, <laughs> I don't know how they survived, who knows. He was a really nice guy, though, Hilly, unusual, unusual guy. I mean, um, I think uh, a lot of club owners... I would say if you went through occupations in show business, like, okay, that guy manages groups, that guy's an agent, that guy is a songwriter, that guy is a record producer, that guy, um, you know, is a roadie, <laughs> um, and this other guy is a club owner. Club owners are really nuts, a lot of them, I think. They- I mean, I, I think that the most crazy people in. The music business, to me, I don't know, in my opinion, are As, club Are they just like, because, I mean, from club owners I've Not met. Not all of them. I mean, I know some very nice ones. I'm friends with some of them, but there are also some really nutty ones. Like, just nuts or like, oh, I'm doing all kinds. Like, are they trying to assimilate to the rock and roll lifestyle a I little bit? I don't know what it is. I just think they... Um, I mean, I'm not not pretending to be crazy. I mean, maybe you have to be crazy to want to do that on a club. I don't know. Yeah. Which is a kind of occupation that only nuts are interested in. <laughs> I don't know. Was when you were like in that CBGBs around that? Was there? Did I mean? I guess when you're in the middle of something, you don't realize like, oh my god, this is this is going to be historic. No. Yeah. Did you look at any of those bands though and go? The only those kids I have really, got it. The only group I really liked was the Ramones from from that group of bands. I I wasn't really crazy about any of the other stuff. Um, I heard them all, and um, I heard all the English stuff. It, none of it really grabbed me. I was already a little jaded because I, I was in a band called the Sidewinders in the 70s, and we were kind of like the house band at Max's Kansas City, which was very different from CBGB's. It was on Park Avenue South, and it was um, kind of artists and um, scene makers and stuff like that. Not that CBGB's didn't have that, but Max's was um, just a little bit different, and, and I was... 18 years old and had this band and we were we played there all the time and all these famous um, trend-setting sort of people were there um, and uh, and then that band broke up and then I did nothing for a little while and then I had the Paley Brothers and then there was this whole CBGB scene which developed after Max's it was there was some overlap but Max's was sort of the hit place and then CBGB's was the hit place um, and you know uh, so by the time CBGB's happened I was I mean, I, I never liked bars anyway, but but you know what I mean? I, 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 there's nothing more depressing than, like, when you start playing music really young, like I did, and then, you know, you play bars. I played bars before I was really old enough to do it. I mean, I don't even know how I got away with it, but I did it. Um, and you go in, in the daytime to load in your equipment or whatever, and there's something about, it's just disgusting. You know, it's like beer on the soaked on the floor, and you know what I mean? It's like kind of a gross atmosphere, and you're setting up, amplifiers and doing a sound check whatever you're doing in the daytime and you kind of go god what a you know <laughs> i mean at it's, nighttime you know and it's packed with people and it's dark 
you don't notice it as much. How, how but even it's a depressing. Nice, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I never really cared about hanging. Like people say, "Hey, that show Cheers." You know, "Hey, that's great." Hey, here's a place where everybody knows you. <laughs> I never, I was never like that. I, I never want to go to a place and drink with a bunch of people. It's never been my thing. It seems like if I know you need that. <laughs> no, it's the only. Those Pat are the... and I are friends, by the way. We uh, go on the road with Dave Keckner. <laughs> That's the backstory. Backstory. But, but back. Speaking Sorry. of backstory, because you said you started young playing in clubs. It's like, yeah. How how young were you? Really young, like twelve. Uh, no. That's um, fifteen. 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 I was living in Boston. When I was 18, I moved um, up to Boston from New York City when I was 18. And we played um, places where you had to be 21. Um, and and we were popular, you know. What time did you leave? How old were you when you left home? Like 15. I 15. dropped out of high school when I was a kid. One year too early, 15. And then just hung out in Manhattan and, um, and played... Uh, Played music. So you you left home at fifteen and moved yeah. to Manhattan. Yeah, that's fucking ballsy. Yeah, and I, you know, I had. Um, you were a small town too. Well, no, we we were in a small town originally. We were in a village called Half Moon, which is uh, north of Albany. Albany is the capital of New York. People, when you say you're from New York, people forget that New York is this tiny little dot on the bottom of New York State, and if you go up, pretty soon drive out of New York City, it gets rural really fast. And we were kind of <clears throat> close to the middle of the whole uh, state. There's really just dairy farms up there. It's where the Mohawk River meets the Hudson River. It's, it's like we were north of that, and there were 50 people in our village. So that's where I really grew up. You grew up in a town of 50 people? Yeah, it's not a town. It was, there was a gas yeah. station nearby. And, 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 um, but that's, and it was just cows and dirt roads and stuff, and, you know, dairy farms. And then... Um, we moved, suddenly my father got a job in Manhattan. And so we moved, um, and, and we lived in New York city. And then, um, I was, uh, I was one year ahead in high school. And, um, after the 11th grade, um, I dropped out and I wasn't really legally supposed to, you're supposed to be 16, but I was 15. And, um, so that was it. And then, um, hung out in Manhattan and played music with various people. I used to, I met all kinds of people back then. Um, really uh, interesting uh, musicians. There was a guy named um, Paul Caruso, who was a harmonica player, a uh, white guy who played, uh, I think he might've been from Chicago, but he taught me how to play. Um, he really nice guy. Um, and he was a contemporary of Paul Butterfield's and Charlie Musselwhite and people like that, you know, white guys who were fascinated by that uh, kind of music. And so he was a great guy. I met Harry Smith, who was uh, um, a filmmaker, uh, older guy, really, really funny, hilarious guy who made um, animated films. But he also um, collected folk songs. And uh, that's how I met him, because he would wander around on the street listening to street singers. And I used to play on the street with friends of mine and stuff like that. And when you're 15, 16, stuff like that, it's, just, it's a fun thing to do. And this is not the late 60s, you know, in Greenwich Village. Um, so there was a lot of uh, stuff happening on the street. And um, anyway, I, I played the Electric Circus. I played uh, Trudy Heller's. I played um, around Manhattan. Plus, this was a time where um, hippies were having festivals and things like that. Uh, you know, so... Whatever band I was in or whatever I was doing, whatever I played a few different instruments, so I'd end up in different 
uh, bands playing different things. I met John Hammond Sr., who actually did a demo with me um, at CBS. Um, I met all kinds of people. You know, <laughs> you know I was... Uh, Jerry Ragney um, gave me... Came up and, when I was singing on the street and said, you should uh, audition for my play. We're getting people together. Uh, and I went and auditioned, and that was hair. You know, I didn't get in, but that was that was the very beginning of that show, which was obviously gigantic smash success. I don't, I don't think that happens anymore where people are approached on the street and like, well, hey. Well, that was 1968, yeah. whatever it was, you know, and he saw a guy with long hair singing on the street. He'd just written it with this other guy whose name I've forgotten. It's like a tall, blonde guy. Jerry Ragney was kind of, I had, he was kind of um, dark hair. Um, but, I mean, they were they would walk around the street looking for people that, you know, who, who would be appropriate for this thing. I had long hair and I was a singer. So, plus I was eight, you know, 16 or 17, something like that. You couldn't have been naked on stage. No, no. Well, you know what? That's uh, we. I didn't even know. Nobody knew what it was about at all. I remember going to the audition and, uh, and singing some song like uh, they gave me a stack of sheet music and said, take any of these that you know. And... Um, I think I, it was some Fred Astaire thing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It wasn't what they wanted. But, I mean, they gave me the sheet music, so I guess I can't blame... They can't blame me, whatever. Yeah. I just chose something I knew. I don't think I knew a lot of the... My parents had that record, so it was uh, an easy thing. But anyway, yeah, I was, we were just talking about... You and I were just talking about, oh, wandering around, yeah, being in Greenwich Village in the 1960s. Yeah. But because you mentioned Fred Astaire, I don't know what made me think. It was like, when you were young, living in that small town, were you... Was there like, a, a, did you have access to a lot of music or did, how well, did that mean? my parents had, you know, my parents had great records and, and my neighbors. I just I, assume everyone was like my parents. My parents only owned the Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kids soundtrack. Which is good, right? It was great. Burt Backrack. Burt Backrack, yeah. And uh, some Anne Murray and Barry Manilow. Wait a minute. Butch Cassidy, that's Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. I yeah. Th- yeah, he wrote that. Yeah. No, I know, but I was trying to think of what movie. Yeah, that's right. Right. And what was the other one they had? Barry Manilow and Anne Murray. <laughs> like that was, the, so for me to discover good music, it was like a real challenge. And for some reason, I but just. But in dis- retrospect, you know, Barry Manilow and Anne Murray are so much better than a lot of the stuff that came. <laughs> I got to say, you know, all in retrospect. But no, I had to, I had access to whatever my parents had. They had more records than your parents. They had. Um, you trying to rub that in? Well, you asked. <laughs> uh, Perry Como. Um, Fred Astaire. I know they had, um, they had a great album. That he did with, um, you know, um, oh God, the Canadian um, piano player, you know, really famous. Is Elton John Canadian? Yeah, no. Anyway, I can't I, think either. I know what you're. It'll hit me later. Anyway, um, so yeah, they had good records. They had all the uh, Broadway shows, which I liked, and they they had um, they had good records. They did, had uh, what's her name, Ella Mae Morris, who I really like to this day. I still like her. She did Cow Cow Boogie, but they had a couple of albums by her. They had Peggy Lee, who I also still like. They had Doris Day. I like Doris Day. I mean, you know, people forget how good, what a good singer she was. Um, what were we just talking about? We were talking about uh, upstate New York, yeah. And there wasn't, there were great radio stations in uh, the Mohawk Valley, Mohawk Valley. We had WPTR and WTRY. Uh, we had great DJs like Boom Boom Brannigan and John Gardner, who played... Um, Really good music. So, and we didn't have, for some reason, I never, 
I probably could have gotten a better radio or something and picked up Boston and picked up Canada and picked up nearby. But we never did. We just listened to whatever. We listened to our stations. And, um, and they played. It's amazing to me now, thinking about it, the stuff I heard on the radio in the late 50s, early 60s was uh, so diverse compared to what I guess people hear now. Because okay. because you would hear a country song right next to a rock and roll song right next to a, anything. Like, DJs played anything they wanted to play. I think. Maybe I'm wrong, but it, it sure seems that way. I think they definitely was more freeform than it is now. Yeah. But it was AM. It wasn't FM. It was way before FM. And it was it was so diverse. And it was, uh, you know, you'd, you'd hear uh, Nat King Cole next to, you know, some garage band. You know, like, uh, you'd hear, you know, Dirty Water by the Standells next to you know, uh, Frank Sinatra, or, you know, you'd hear a Carl Smith, you'd hear a country record um, next to a Beatles record. You know, honestly, like, and they were hits on separate charts, definitely, because I know the charts were separate, at least by then, and Cashbox and Billboard had a country chart and a pop chart, and I'm not sure if there was ever such a thing as a rock and roll chart, but there was a Hot 100 and the Top 10. Everybody had that, but... I don't know why. I mean, where I lived, and it was also a time where there was regional hits. You know, you'd have yeah, there's bands from Chicago. Yeah, that no one's heard of outside of there. They, yeah, right. I forget what they, but they had some really shitty song about Lakeshore Drive, but it was L, driving along LSD was there, and it's fucking terrible with like Liberace type piano. But but it got played up there constantly. Yeah, to, to this day. Yeah, but I mean things that weren't even <clears throat> specific lyrically to you know. Um, to a place would, would, would somehow catch on and, you know, you'd have a hit in um, Shreveport, you know, and, and that song, which who knows what it is, also got played in Detroit, but maybe it didn't make it in Cleveland. In Cleveland, it was stiff. And, you know, and I think that, that everything got more homogenized later, but, but, but back in the, um, the 60s, you actually, you had regional hits. I think that went into the 70s even, um, where people could chart things and say, yeah, you know, you're doing really well in Chicago, but you're not doing so great in Miami, you know, things like that. Yeah. But I think it's all different now. I don't know. I wonder why that died out. I don't know. I think, I really don't know. I know that FM radio um, really changed everything. Um, in, in just, it seems, like, it seems like the late 60s and early 70s, um, things, things really, really changed in terms of uh, just... Um, the kind of music that was getting played. Um, it was, uh, and I don't know what to attribute it to, um, except that maybe, you know, the tradition of songwriters um, who were not performers writing for performers uh, and being produced by producers who only produced records. In other words, you know, um, you'd have a band or a singer, let's say, uh, with a real band or a made-up band and somebody would find a good songwriting team to write them a hit. And this was true in country and R&B and uh, in pop. It was, just, it was just a tradition. And I think that dissolved. I think um, when, when um, bands like the Beatles and stuff started saying, well, we can do it all ourselves. I mean, the Beatles started out with George Martin as their producer, and, uh, and they were doing covers of other people's songs. Um, they were writing pretty quickly, too, but... The very, very beginning, they were doing covers of, of, of famous songs. And then by the time, you know, the late 60s came around, 
Um, they were producing pretty much their own records. I think George Martin was still there, but I mean, they knew what they wanted. And, you know, I think other, other bands took their cue. And so the, the idea of a songwriting team or producer became irrelevant. And, um, you know, and I, I think that, that had a lot to do with what changed um, radio, uh, just what you ended up hearing on the radio. It was uh, it was an odd time. It seemed to become that's in like you said in the seventies and stuff. It seemed to change. It seemed like that's when it became more segregated too. Because like I know like in Chicago, like you couldn't play disco and like they would one just one station would play disco, another one would play. Yeah, and it was like right. disco was really like something that everybody hated for no apparent reason. Right. I don't know why. Right. It just was like that sucks, and it was like yeah. a big no, I movement. No, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I liked it. I mean, I liked a lot of it. I mean, I. I I was all over the place whenever I did. I didn't find that much. I really liked in, in general. Um, but when, when I'd find something in that decade that I liked, I would latch on. I would latch on. Did you like the Bee Gees? Yes. I, mean, you... I, I liked the Bee Gees way before that though. I liked the Bee Gees before they were, uh, before Saturday Night Fever. I liked them actually way better when they first started out. Their first album is a great album. Um, when they did songs like I can't see nobody and, um, uh, I don't know. I can't remember them right now. But the first, the first records were, the, they were like really good pop records. I, I liked them okay when they when they did disco, but not as much. I liked them way better when they were just like a little pop band. Which goes back to because you, your brother and you were in their Sgt. Pepper's movie. <laughs> yes, we were. Which was just a, a cameo with uh, a lot of other famous people. Um, we were next to Dame Edna, Carol Channing. Frankie Valley, Tina Turner, and I don't remember who else. Uh, but I'm talking about a crowd scene uh, at the end of the movie, so you have to, if you blink, you will miss us. But, <laughs> but we are there. Robert Stigwood sent a limo to, uh, this is when we were making the Paley Brothers album in the 70s, sent a limo to our uh, our uh, elegant Oakwood Apartments uh, on Barham <laughs> address, picked us up and took us to this movie set. And it was a lot of fun. We had a whole day with all these unusual people, but you could see us in the crowd scene at the end. It must have been crazy on that set, because that's like a, a lot of celebrity and fame to be in one... Yeah, and George Martin um, was the producer of that. We all had to sing uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band <laughs> and do little dance steps. Uh, what can I say? I mean, you, you know, you managed to bring up something really, uh, you know, I guess embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> you know... I should have known that you would do that, but it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't I always matter. thought it was kind of cool because even though that movie, I guess, is I, I saw it as a kid, and there was I, I can't remember it to tell you the truth. Is Steve Martin in it? Steve Martin is in it. Now, what does he do in it? I have no fucking memory. I know Steve Aerosmith's in it. Aerosmith's in it. Everybody's in it. It's kind it's of one of those things. Alice Cooper is in it. Really? As an actor or just performing? I feel like he does a song. Wow. Well, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I know. Um, Aerosmith does come together. Yeah. I don't remember what, what Alice Cooper And was. I don't think I'm nuts that Alice Cooper was in You're it. You're probably right. But was, so that was pre-The Paley Brothers coming out. Was there... We were making our album during that. That And I guess Robert Sigwood thought, these guys might make it. I better put them in, in the movie. Was there a lot of anticipation of that album? I don't being... know. I, 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 I Probably not. But I mean, somehow Robert Stigwood heard about us, and he was the Bee Gees manager. And, and I think he might have even produced that movie. It wouldn't surprise me. He was a big shot producer. And did you, how did you, the Paley Brothers sort of come to an end, or did they? Or, um, I mean, we just kind of we. Um, it was funny. We we made this album, which did nothing except 
generate some interest here and there. And we did an EP before that. We did four songs before that. Um, you know, people who liked it liked it, but I don't think it got out that much. Like I said before, it was a little confusing. People didn't know if we were like Hall and Oates or were we like some punk band or what were we, you know? Um, so anyway, um, yeah, and then, um, and then, oh, then we made a record with Phil Spector, which was interesting. I got a phone call like three in the morning once. In Bo we were living in Boston. This was after the album, and we weren't really doing much. We were, we'd done some gigs, and we were on, I think quite a bit of time had gone by, and he called up, and I couldn't really believe it was him. But he had a copy of the album, and he said, would we be interested in you know, coming out? to L.A. and making a record with him. And I was a Phil Spector freak. Um, I know his records and his songs. And I uh, was a big, big fan. And um, so I really was amazed by that phone call. And within a couple of days, we were here in L.A. Came out. Uh, we were staying on uh, Holloway Road. You know, um, what's the name of that place? Down by this, on the strip. I forgot the name of it right now. Sorry. Uh, Chateau Marmont? No, uh, the Marquis. Sunset Marquis. Staying at the Sunset Marquee, this is the weird thing. I'll tell you quickly. I um, went in the uh, Logan Airport for the flight and picked up the book Elvis, What Happened, which had just come out. So whatever that tells you what year it was. <laughs> it was did you read that? No. Okay. It's pretty good. It's by, um, I think it's by the some of the Memphis Mafia guys or his guys. Oh, really? But it starts out, the very first thing, chapter one, First thing it says is a quote, and it says, Mike Stone must die. And it's Elvis talking. And Mike Stone was a karate instructor who had an affair with Priscilla while Elvis was on the road. So Elvis is on the road doing whatever he's doing, and his karate instructor is with Priscilla, and this didn't go over well when he found out about it. And he said... A guy who cheated on his wife left and right, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> And so anyway, he said, Mike Stone must die. And then that's the beginning of the book. I read the book on the plane, get to L.A. Next day, Phil sends a car for Phil Spector sends a car for us to go up to his place, which is on La Colina. It's not um, where he his last place was. This is um, up by Hamburger Hamlet. Um, there was Dick Clark had an office. And then right where Sunset turns off in Doheny uh, goes up to the right, there's that's where he lived on a private uh, drive up there. He'd been there for a long time. His mother lived up there um, in big, big house. And there was like a courtyard and then a separate little house is where his mother lived. And anyway, we went up to Phil Spector's house. You know, it's like gigantic fence around it with pictures of, you know, uh, German shepherds frothing at the mouth, you know, <laughs> warning, you know, stay away, whatever. You know, uh, gates open and we go in. No Phil, just, you know, in this big mansion. And um, <clears throat> anyway, we're sitting there for a while waiting in this big living room. And um, all of a sudden, this guy comes in and he, and he goes, uh, hi. He goes, uh, you got, you guys, you guys, he goes, hi, I'm Mike Stone. He goes, uh, you guys either sing or you do karate. <laughs> or, or, he goes, or you wouldn't be here. And my brother goes, we sing and, you know. He goes, oh, well, Phil's going to come down soon. I just thought I'd say hi. <laughs> and then he disappears. 
But that kind of blew my mind. I mean, that's crazy. I just read about this guy in an Elvis Presley book. I'm in Phil Spector's house, and he walks in. He's Phil's karate instructor too. So, anyway, that was my introduction to Phil Spector. Oh, and then we, um, and then we worked with Phil for like um, about a week at his house, like just practicing various things. Like he had different ideas for us to sing, different songs he wanted us to do, and. Um, he had an electric piano, and I was playing. He always had me play these songs for him on this little electric piano. He had other pianos, but for some reason, this is this was it. And um, and he settled on this song, which he had recorded with Dion in the seven early seventies, like a few years before us, like four or five years before us. Um, and it was called "Baby Let's Stick Together." It was a song he wrote with Jeff Barry. Jeff Barry's a really famous songwriter um, from the Brill Building, who wrote with Ellie Greenwich. I mean, they wrote. Going to the Chapel of Love. They wrote a lot of really big, big songs. Um, but anyway, so he wrote this with Jeff. And um, anyway, so our arrangement of it um, was way different than what Dion did. And then Phil booked Gold Star, which was his favorite studio, He, um, which is about a week after we did all these rehearsals. And, um, and then he got all these famous session guys who are now known as the Wrecking Crew, Back then, I had never heard that phrase before. I think that was invented later. But it was Hal Blaine on drums, Ray Pullman on bass, uh, Julius Wechter on um, percussion, um, just, you know, kind of his guys, a whole bunch of them. And um, we went in there and, you know, another drummer, Jim Keltner, was there. Um, it was it was an impressive group of musicians. And... Um, a uh, bunch of guys clapping hands and Rodney Bingenheimer, Harvey Kubernick, these two guys were there. There were all these different people were there. And uh we made the record. You were asking what happened to the Paley brothers. That's a very long winded answer. <laughs> so the last thing we did as the Paley brothers was this record with Phil Spector, which never was released. And that is also on this Paley Brothers reissue that we were talking about earlier. So there's all these bonus tracks and the last thing on the album is this track produced by Phil Spector which is very rare and it is the last it's the last thing he ever did with that group of guys which were his A-team his A-team you know they they called the Wrecking Crew now what was it like to work with Phil Spector because people you hear you hear which like oh he was crazy and he was this and I'm like but then you always hear like the same two stories yeah right you know I never had any weird experience with him at all ever and my brother didn't Um, and I've it's so funny because I think um, Johnny Ramone wrote a book um, and the Paley brothers are in the book and um, somebody read it to me and it's so completely wrong because it's, it's got, not only does it have the timeline wrong, we made, we made our record with Phil Spector before, right before the Ramones did theirs and we were recording for the same label and we made one song, we did one song with Phil Spector um, the Ramones did a whole album, but it was like a month or two after us. And in this Johnny Ramone book, he's got it turned around. <clears throat> and he's got Phil locking my brother and I out of the studio. It's a completely invented story. And I like Johnny. He was a really nice guy. I just don't know where this story came from because it was he might have had us confused with someone else. <laughs> but it never happened. Uh, he, he's got us. He said, boy, I felt sorry for the Paley brothers. They... They were banging on the door and couldn't get into our session, and Phil wouldn't let him in. And, and I said, "Come on in." 
But, but anyway, it was it was never happened. It just never ever. I never went to any of those Ramon sessions at all, and uh, I wasn't even in L.A. then. So, but we we were before them as far as making that Phil Spector record. And then um, anyway, so what was it like working with him? He was great because he was uh, funny and he was um, he was enthusiastic, and um, I also happened to be a Phil Spector. Um, kind of not I mean I know all his records and um, I knew them I, I used to listen to his records like and just kind of sit there and have my mind blown um, is it a little unsettling to be with in a like yeah. to work with somebody you uh, absolutely yeah it was for me the biggest person I'd ever worked with um, you know um, as far as someone in my life who I admired um, yeah it, it's really unsettling but but he also put us at ease um and was very cool to us, you know. He would, uh, you know, he'd be very generous with uh, his knowledge about how, what he did in the studio and how he did things. And it was really fun to watch him um, and how he managed to get what he got. Um, he had a, a style, a very unique style, which, and he was like the first guy, I think, to make a big deal out of, you know, on records, produced by Phil Spector. It was actually a, a big deal. I think that's why... John Lennon and George Harrison and, and um, people like that made solo records after the Beatles. Well, I think he, he produced the last Beatles record. Um, and then, you know, George Harrison hired him uh, to do, um, you know, uh, My Sweet Lord and, and other hits. He did Instant Karma. Um, I don't know if that was the Beatles or John Lennon. That was John Lennon. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So they would get, you know, Phil Spector had a unique sound. And people... Uh, reacted to this gigantic thing that he created. It was fun to be there and see him do how, see how he did it. And he it wasn't like uh, rocket science, but it was really interesting to to see. You know, it really was. You see a guy like Tommy, you know, he had guitar player Tommy Tedesco who's played on a million records, you know, probably one of the most recorded guitar players um ever. You know, alongside of James Burton Again, one of the most recorded. So you have two guys with Telecasters. You have Barney Kessel on another guitar. You have Barney Kessel's kids on two acoustic guitars. You have four guys clapping around a microphone. This is all in a room, you know, kind of like this. I mean, twice the size of this, maybe. Not even a high ceiling, particularly. Um, but it's all about mic placement. It's like, it's it, that's what he did. He put a microphone over here. He go, wait a minute. And you have a guy playing accordion, you know, uh, Frank Morocco on accordion. Um, and you'd say, okay, why? But once, you know, because you've got all these other things happening. And you can't even really hear this accordion. Then you go into the control room and you listen to what Phil's hearing. And you can hear it very clearly. And if you didn't have that accordion, it wouldn't sound like w what this big wash of stuff is. And some people really hate it. Uh, but but I've always liked his records. Uh, it's... Uh, and, and all these elements, you know, kind of come together and make something which is uh, really, really unique. And um, and it's funny because I used to try to take them apart. I mean, sometimes in my, when I was a kid, I'd listen to Dudu Run Run or something by the Crystals. And I'd go, wow, what is going on? You know, I, not that I really, I had no idea. I was 10 years, 11 years old. But it was like, there's something very cool about this, you know, that's very different than other records. And it, it wasn't gimmicks. It wasn't like people... Tend when they imitate Phil Spector records, they tend to go to certain cliches which um, aren't really it. 
What are the cliches? The cliches people go to are reverb. And he did make records with reverb, but some of the best ones to me are the early ones where he didn't do that. He was They're pretty dry, meaning that there's not a lot of reverb on them. There's not a lot of um, gimmickry. There's just uh, very solid, dry sounds. You can hear a song like, um, like uh, Today I Met the Boy I'm Gonna Marry by Darlene Love or um, Why Do Lovers Break Each Other's Hearts by Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans or... The Do Run Run by The Crystals. I mean, there's some reverb on these things, but it's really his later records where you get this kind of cavernous sound. It's it's uh, He did records that did pretty well, too, by like Sonny Charles and the Checkmates. He did a record called um, Black Pearl, um, which was written by Tony Wine, who who's she's a really great songwriter, too. But anyway, he, he got into more of a, a, a bigger echo sound, but... The early ones are pretty dry. So when people try to imitate Phil Spector, um, they always go for this kind of big uh, echoey snare drum sound and they go for castanets going, you know, but with a, you know, with a, you know, they do that. And um, it's not really what he did. When you really listen to them, it's not like that, you know. It's funny when the way people remember things and then they try to recreate them, they... They usually don't do a very good job. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. You yeah, know, because your Phil Spector knowledge is so huge, is there any stuff that he produced that uh, may be a little bit for, forgotten or lesser known that that you think people... That no, would, that not would, really. I think that... Because it's it, also... It's all, it's all pretty big. I mean, the <clears throat> Phil Spector Christmas record gets played every starting way before Christmas, every, like, around Thanksgiving. It's I Everybody loves it. Everybody, it's it's funny that you asked that because I was talking to my wife about this during the uh, the time right before Christmas, um, and I and it wasn't just his songs or his productions, I should say, because I mean he didn't really write very many. I think he only wrote one song on that album, um, which is the one that Darlene Love does on Letterman um, every year, um, um, "Christmas Baby, Please Come Home," which he wrote. I think he wrote it with Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich. But anyway, uh, all the other ones are classics like Sleigh Ride, um, you know, Christmas classics that, are, that were well-known at the time, you know. Well, Sleigh Ride, I think, was written by um, Leroy Anderson. You know, his version of that, you hear that for weeks and weeks and weeks before Christmas. But I was just wondering this year, you know, if the people who are using this on ad campaigns and also... His other stuff, there's like um, Imagine by John Lennon. He produced that record. And it was on some ad, you know, like like really big ad. Not that, not that it matters, but I just wonder if these people know what's going on. I don't care, you know. Um, but do the, does somebody go, wow, you know, this guy's uh, had kind of a tragic ending to his story. <laughs> Uh, I think you'd say this guy's on top of the world, you know, really on top of the world. I mean, probably the most famous, rec- arguably the most famous record producer ever. Whether you can, whether you like him or not, doesn't matter. I mean, his music even. It's just he was. If you, you know, if you think of a record producer, who do you think of? You know, you, right. you know. I mean, I mean, like I said before, he's the first guy that really sort of got famous for that. I mean, Owen Bradley was really famous in Nashville. But I think Phil Spector's name is like, you know, just kind of like, okay, 
record producer. Now you say his name, and that's not what people think of. But anyway, it's just interesting how things work yeah. out. It's you couldn't. Bad. You couldn't. You probably most people can't go through a day without hearing something Phil yeah, Spector had his hand in. Probably, probably several times a day. I think so. I mean, yeah. If you're, if you're, I guess, yeah. Most people who have a radio on or a a TV or, or something like that, or walking through a mall, a mall, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, I, I wonder about things like that too. It's not just him. There are other people like that. Was working with him a big influence on when you produced records? Yes. I, but would you say that's where you learned a great deal of it? Or? Yes. Yeah. And I haven't done anything big, but I've I've worked with. Yeah, Brian Wilson is not big. Well, no, <laughs> no, but I mean, my, the Brian Wilson record that I worked on was not a hit. So I mean, when I say that, I mean you know Brian Wilson um, had you know huge hit records you know for for a long long time. And that petered out. And then he, and that was with the Beach Boys. And then he made a solo record, which I was involved. I was involved in that record. How did you get in? How did you guys meet? I was. Um, I didn't. I met him once. Uh, my brother and I met him out here before I worked with him. I met him at his house. He used to live on um, Bellagio Road in Bel Air. And um, his brother Carl, um, and this other guy named Ricky Fatar. Ricky is now Bonnie Raitt's drummer, but at the time was playing with the Beach Boys. Um, and this would have been 1977 or something like that. Um, I guess it was 76 or 77, my brother and I. I knew the Beach Boys because I was a Beach Boys fanatic. And my brother and I um, used to follow them around when nobody, nobody cared about them. In the late 60s and the early 70s, the Beach Boys had a really rough time. It, you know, they were not considered hip. So then, you know what I mean? Like, you, anybody could go see them. They would play the Orpheum Theater in Boston, and they wouldn't even fill it up. Wow. You know, it's small theater. Um, <clears throat> so that was a good time to get to know people like that in a way. Even though they were down and out, the door was open for fans like my brother and I. So, yeah, and other friends of mine, too. We would just go. In any case, they, Carl and, um, and Ricky Fatar, Carl Wilson and Ricky Fatar knew that my, we called them and we said, oh, we're in L.A., we're visiting. And um, they said, do you want to meet Brian? And so my brother and I flipped. He said, yes. And the next day we drove with them over to, um, to Brian's house on Bellagio Road, um, not far from Johnny Carson's house, who was up the block, and then Elvis Presley's house, which was a couple of houses from that, and Ricky Nelson's house. This is all Jesus. right there in Bel Air, right, right there. Um, and Brian was really nice to us. He, he hadn't been on the road with the Beach Boys for a long time, but he was really nice to us and um, very curious about, you know, oh, wow, you guys drove across the country. Well, tell me about that. And, you know, stuff like that. We were just kind of, I mean, I was in awe because he meant so much to me. Um, so that was a big thrill. And then many, many years later, Lenny Warrenker, who was the head of um, Warner Brothers Records, um, and Seymour Stein, who we had already worked with, my brother and I had worked with, called me. I was working on an album in London. I was producing a record, and they said, we're at the Hall of Fame. It was one of the first ones, um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame things, and uh, Brian Wilson's here, and he's just sitting there by himself, and you know, I went over and talked to him. This was uh, both of them, the, the head of Warner Brothers Records and the head of Sire Records, who you know worked together. They um, went over to talk to Brian about making a solo record, and um, and he was interested. And they called me and they said, are you interested in coming? I said, I would 
come right now. If you, if you want me to come right this minute, I will leave now. They said, no, finish what you're doing. But then, and so I did. And I went back to Boston for like a day. And then I came out here and I uh, ended up at the Oakwood Apartments again. <laughs> you know? Are those a real shithole or something? Uh, it's, they're kind of legendary. They're, they're, they're where you go <clears throat> when you're trying to get somewhere, I guess. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, you know. That's a whole nother radio show <laughs> about the awkward. You should do that. That's actually that's a great idea. Yeah, I can't remember. <clears throat> Blank a patch. Somebody, you know, you could get a bunch of guys to talk about the Oakwood. Apartment. That's a great idea. I think you should. Um, but anyway, yeah, I went there again, and Brian was living in Malibu at the time, and he was under the care of a psychiatrist named Eugene Landy, and I was thrust into this kind of um, weird scene where I was um, trying to. Uh, Make, help this record happen um, and um, there was this 24 hour psychiatrist guy um, and who actually put me on a beeper and I didn't work for him I, I worked for Warner Brothers Records but uh, he would beat me all the time and, um, and uh, you know I have uh, I have actual I have tapes of him he used to call my answering machine when they were still cassettes and the thing and I have all those Somewhere, and they're very much like uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the Buddy Rich tapes. If yeah, you, they're very much like that. <laughs> so I've got a lot of those. Eugene Landy yelling and screaming at me, uh, but basically it was really a good experience because Brian and I became very tight and started writing songs, and that became a really big deal. Um, made this solo record, which was uh, you know it came out to some critical acclaim, um, and went on to do other things with him. Uh, and uh, so that that was a great relationship. I mean, there's a guy who, um, you know, had a zillion hit records. I guess we were talking about Phil Spector, who also really dug Phil Spector. But Brian, um, Brian, and Brian Wilson and Mike Love wrote an amazing string of hits. Um, it, it, like Phil Spector gets copped. <clears throat> <clears throat> when Excuse people me. cop the Beach Boys, well, that, especially the harmonies, like is that is that that's also usually done wrong? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, because there's definitely been a resurgence of that those kind of harmonies oh, yeah. in a lot of indie bands and stuff yeah, right yeah. now. The Beach Boys are well, especially Brian is considered super super hip. And yeah. you go back and listen to, I mean, a couple of years ago, I went and listened to the reissue of Smile, uh-huh. and I won't lie, I smoked some marijuana, uh-huh. and I had headphones on. Like I got real old school nerdy about it, but uh-huh. it was like, I mean, it's it's almost it's so layered and beautiful. It's like it's it's pretty intense. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I always, I mean, to me, right out of the box, he was. I mean, I'm the right age, I guess, but it, but yeah, I mean, they had a song called "Surfer's Rule," which was. Um, Sung, Dennis Wilson sang lead on and uh, Brian wrote it I think he wrote it with Mike Love I'm pretty sure he did um, and, I mean their their harmonies were ridiculous and their sound was so great and and the records were just so mind-blowing I, I mean when I was a kid like you know I'm up in upstate New York covered with snow and in the middle of nowhere and it was just the most romantic you know exotic thing to me to think about hot rods and and surfing and girls in bikinis and the whole thing of this, what this is. And I had, I had, you know, I mean, L.A., I had no clue what it really was. But, I mean, that, those records sold it. They sold it so well <laughs> to somebody like me. And also, the other thing is, when you sat down and, and started listening and started trying to play music uh, or trying to play along with records, you go, wow, this is 
so sophisticated and so beyond everybody else. I, I, I don't think anyone's... I mean, Burt Backrack and Brian. And to he, me, as far as, as far as chord changes, I mean, in American pop music, I, I don't know. Brian Wilson wasn't formally trained either. It was all no. sort of like... No, he's just gifted, really gifted guy. And I think Burt Backrack. Burt Backrack had a lot of training, but I think Burt Backrack is... You, you can't teach somebody to write melodies like these guys do. It, that, I don't believe you can do that. I, I think it's just a gift. And, and, you know, and also they have great ears. You know, if you, if you, if you can listen to stuff and, and absorb stuff and then imitate stuff, you know, you, you're going to make great, you're going to make good stuff and maybe great stuff. If you, if you can appreciate stuff enough. And Brian Wilson, who I've hung out with quite a bit, Bert Backrack, I have never hung around with except once, but, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, there aren't a lot of guys. Neil Sedaka is another guy who can do stuff. But, I mean, no. I don't, I don't think anyone's touched Brian Wilson personally, except maybe Burt Backrack. And, you know, Paul McCartney would tell you that, too, and I know that, because he's said it a million times, and I've actually talked to him once, and he, 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 all he wanted to talk about was Brian. That's the only reason I talked to him. He wouldn't have, have been interested in talking to me in any, in, for any other reason. But he met me in a context where... He knew I was working with Brian, so he came up and talked to me, he introduced himself and said, you know, and we ended up talking about Brian for about an hour. And it was his favorite subject as far as talking about music. And there's a guy who can write hits, too, and who knows about chords. You know, it's just the truth. You know, it's, it's, it's not even a matter of opinion. It's just it's like as far as chords, chords and harmony, we're talking about really I'm talking about really heavy people <laughs> do you prefer mccartney or lennon uh mccartney do, musically more the legit songwriter you think uh i think they both wrote beautiful stuff great stuff and i'm not putting john lennon down but you did put me on the spot <laughs> I, would, I would i would i would definitely say that the majority of the ones that i really go back to are mccartney songs um and uh you know, it's a confusing thing, and I know that it irritated him at some point because there was never there was never any differentiation between. Dif, say the word for me. Dif, differentiation. Differentiation. Thank you. Thank that's, you. That's why she's my girlfriend, smarter yeah. than me. Wow. <laughs> um, articulate. Um, <clears throat> between from song to song, everything just said Lennon McCartney, Lennon McCartney, Lennon McCartney, Lennon McCartney. It never said McCartney Lennon, and I think this came up a few years ago and he said I think he actually went through the songs and you know right righted that I don't think saying he righted a wrong but I'm saying that he pointed out this that or the other thing it's just not it was hard as a kid you know for me I always wondered you know and and I mean then it became and you think you're right you know I, I'd listen to stuff and I go well that seems more like Paul wrote it you know, I don't think John Lennon wrote um, Fool on the Hill. I really don't, you know, and I don't think, um, you know, but then it turns out there I was wrong on a few of them, you know. Uh, I was right about that one, but I'm just saying that, you know, if, if you go into the Beatles stuff and take it apart, it's you, you sometimes assume some of these uh, rockier ones would be John, but they're not, you know, and, and vice versa, although usually not vice versa. Usually if there's something that's a Tin Pan Alley or um, slightly syrupy or something, people attribute that to Paul, and they're usually right. But but it's not always the case. And as far as experimentation and being avant-garde and blah, 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 again, it's 
it's wrong to assume that that's all John because it's not. And Paul was super avant-garde too, and maybe even before him, I think introduced him to the sort of gallery, English gallery scene or whatever, where he met Yoko and blah, blah. Paul was already there collecting Magritte paintings and, you know, whatever he was doing. So it's not, you know what I mean? It's like the, the, right. the, the cliches about these guys are not necessarily right. Long-winded answer to your... No, it was a great question, answer. Who do I like better? I, 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 I go back to the Paul songs, I guess. But uh, there are other English composers uh, from the 60s. Um, Tony Hatch, who um, wrote Don't Sleep in the Subway. Fantastic. He's like the British back rack. He's great. You know, there are, there are, you know, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. I love the Rolling Stones early records. Um, I mean, I know them inside out. I was I was crazy about those records. I love the Kinks early records when they first came out. I love the Who's first couple of records. I when all these bands got serious and tried to be important, I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of like I lost interest. You know, I really did. I really lost interest, and to the point where I don't even know the records. And people think I'm kidding. Like I talk to friends of mine, it's... and and they'll say, "Oh, you don't know that Who record from." It seemed you know, like when, I, when they did rock operas, I was you know <laughs> I was looking for something else to listen to, and I love the Who. I love my generation. I love Substitute. I love the first rec, the first two or three albums. I love them, and then I just completely lose interest in it. And the Kinks, I love them. Three or four albums in, and then after that, it's like, eh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, Beatles too. I mean, Beatles, honestly, you know, <clears throat> I love the early stuff. Love it. I love it. I could I could go through the first two or three albums and just give you every note. Uh, Rolling Stones, uh, I I love up to and through Beggar's Banquet, and then Brian Jones died, and and it always puzzled me. I was like, why why do I not care about these albums anymore? Am I going up or what's going on? Because it was only the late '60s. I was like, damn, these records sound different. Something's different. I don't know what it is. Because Brian Jones wasn't a songwriter. It was nothing to do with songwriting. I, I couldn't figure it out, although it did have to do with songwriting, but it wasn't him. He just coincidentally died when they started doing, the Rolling Stones had a different approach to making records. And I found this out from Andrew Oldham, who was their producer, who's a great guy, who has a radio show on Sirius. Um, but anyway, Andrew Oldham told me why, because I asked him, I got to know him. And I, said, I point blank said the same thing I just said to you. It's like, what, what happened? Why, after Beggar's Banquet, do the records change? And actually, it's not really true. The, 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 yeah, that is Beggar's Banquet. But but he said, and Andrew Oldham, by the way, was not on Beggar's Banquet. He didn't produce it. He The last run record that his name is on is Satanic Majesty's Request, which I actually like. And he walked out, he told me, halfway through that record, and which is uh, the second to last Rolling Stones record that I really, really know inside out. Every song could tell you everything about it. But Why? And he said, it's because Mick Jagger and Keith Richards stopped writing songs the way they used to, which was in a room together, let's write a hit. Let's write a hit right now. Let's write a hit and then let's write another hit. And let's get to- together tomorrow and we'll, you know, we'll finish that one. And then we'll do another one. And, um, but they were working together and they were not, they were unabashedly um, going after, the, their goal was to be successful and to write songs that people could remember and that uh, they were emulating their idols. And the people they loved, if you, if you really get into it and check it out, and I've watched all these videos of them and interviews, I've read them all, I've read Keith Richards' book, which I loved, 
Um, and and I've talked to Andrew Oldham about it, who was their manager and producer through the first 10 albums. I mean, whatever made the Rolling Stones famous. Uh, satisfaction, you know, before that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, and emulating their heroes during the writing process. And their heroes were not the people that people think they were. And, you know, uh, everyone thinks, oh, Rolling Stones, you know, bad boy image and all this stuff. And when you get into it, the stuff they were into, really into, super poppy American records. They love, Of course they love blues and R&B and all this stuff, but they were way into pop too, way into it. You know, uh, Gene Pitney, he's on the first Rolling Stones album. If you look at the credits, Gene Pitney is there. Phil Spector on the first Rolling Stones record. It's not a coincidence. It's not an accident. These are the people, Brill Building, Tin Pan Alley, New York City, hey, churn out hits. Carol King, Neil Sedaka, Don Kirshner, Jeff Barry, Ellie Greenwich, Barry Mann, Cynthia Wheel. These are the songwriters who, who created so many hits. Plus, Motown, you know, Barry Gordy, Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye. This is what the Rolling Stones... I, I could go through the songs with you. and I mean, first of all, the bunch of, their first bunch of albums and the Beatles were covers of Smokey Robinson songs, <laughs> of Carole King songs. Uh, this is how they started. So when they started writing songs, of course they're going to imitate. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the highest form of flattery. I mean, they're, they're going after, that's what they want. But after, just coincidentally, around this, Brian Jones died in, the, in whatever it was, 68, whenever it was, they started... Um, not writing even in the same room together. Keith Richards bought a place, I don't know where, and Jagger's in the south of France in some mansion or whatever. And they didn't even like... Andrew Oldham told me that they would get in the studio together and just start jamming. And like, okay, man, that's a cool riff. And okay, let's write some words. And he said he was used to walking into the studio with a bunch of hits ready to record. Like, let's record these hits, you know, watching the clock, you know which is similar to the Beatles stories about when they made their first records with George Martin and they'd be at Abbey Road Studios and there'd be these guys in laboratory coats. You know, this is the way it was done. Guys wore, wore ties to work. You know, a laboratory coat with gloves and their fiddling knobs and their engineers. And, you know, here's these guys, you know, from Liverpool making this record and you've got to be done. You've got to be out of here in 45 minutes. We're looking at this gigantic clock, which is up there and that's how it's done, you know, Love, love me, do. Okay, take four. Okay, you guys are done. Get out of here. You know, that's how it was done. Rolling Stones, same thing. And Oldham, Andrew Oldham, was imitating that style. I mean, the Beatles, by the way, wrote I Want to Be Your Man, which was sung by Ringo when the Beatles did it. But before that, gave it to the Rolling Stones. It was the first chart hit for the Rolling Stones was written by the Beatles. People forget that. So this is all uh, just in talking about... Um, what happened to the Rolling Stones? That's, I'm sorry I get so sidetracked. No, no. But the, the Rolling Stones... <clears throat> That's what I want. <laughs> I, love the, I, I love the Rolling Stones. And I, and I, um, but, but the records that, 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 you know, when they started... According to Andrew, what happened is they started jamming in the studio rather than walking in with hits, with songs ready to go. And so that's where the sound started getting different and then you know they're occasionally they're great songs after that to me i just don't know the albums inside out anymore and i and i lost my thing of wanting to know every song i mean i could and it's funny cuz you and i work with david keckner and uh, go on the road with him and he's our great buddy and 
considers himself a huge Rolling Stones fan, and he is. His knowledge of the Rolling Stones begins exactly where mine... <laughs> it really does, exactly where mine ends. And, and he'll say, yeah, man, you know, on uh, Goat's Head Soup, there's this track, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know it. I've never even heard it. And if I've heard it, you know, it's not as good as, <laughs> to me, like a song on Aftermath, and, and, which is a great album, which Keckner's probably maybe heard or doesn't really care about. You know what I mean? It's like there, there are two groups of Rolling Stones fans, and I guess I'm more the old school Rolling Stones fan. And that's great. The, did you produce work with the Ramones or my nuts? I made one song with the Ramones. I didn't produce it. Um, it was produced. It's on the Paley Brothers, um, complete Paley Brothers recording. It's called, um, it's called um, Come On, Let's Go, which was a song written by Richie Valens. And um, the story on that was that um, my brother and I were out here making this record in Santa Monica, making the Paley Brothers album. And the Ramones were at the Tropicana Motel on, on um, Santa Monica Boulevard. And... Um, and Joey was sick. Joey was the lead singer, and he was always sick. He was always he was in the hospital for something. Really nice, great guy, but very sickly. And I don't know what this was. It was he had horrible asthma. You name it. This guy was a mess. Um, when you see Joey Ramone, pictures of the Ramones, just remember that. You know, you look at him, and you go, oh, my God, this guy's really weird. It's like his <laughs> hips were messed up. His jaw was messed up. His teeth were all messed up. His vision was all screwed up. His, his breathing was messy. His voice sounded the way it sounded because of that. He was a real mess. And he was in the hospital out here. And the other guys, Dee Dee and, um, and Johnny and um, Tommy, the original drummer, um, were in the motel doing nothing. And Seymour Stein, the head of the record label, said, why don't you guys go over and see the Paley Brothers? You're doing nothing and go cut a track with them. So they came over to the studio. And um, we did Come On, Let's Go, which was... Um, recorded originally by Richie, Va written by Richie Valens, and then done by the McCoys. The McCoys did "Hang On Sloopy," uh, which was also a cover of uh, an R&B record. But um, anyway, so we did um, we did "Come On, Let's Go." My brother sang lead, I sang harmony, I played um, some organ in the background, but it's uh, very quiet. Anyway, it's it's on the record, and it's in the movie "Rock and Roll High School" when they blow up the high school at the end. That's me and my brother singing. Um, and I have a couple other songs in that movie. You said it too, because you know you're not a particular fan of punk. But I wonder what what made the Ramones different than I don't know. I do know. <clears throat> I do know what made them different. Uh, I the word uh, the whole term punk rock. I, I you know I, I don't know about that. But but here's the thing: the Ramones did really catchy songs. They did really fast, fun songs. They were fun guys. They were fun. The, 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 it was just. It was, it was really fun to see the Ramones. You could dance to it. It was like the other stuff that was out there at the time was nothing like that. It was like... Very you know, serious, wasn't it? Serious, kind of like, you know, labored, too thought out, way too, you know, way too much head and not a lot of heart. Like, you know, oh, I'm going to be arty or I'm going to be cool or I'm going to be a rebel or I just very... You know, and people say, well, the Ramones were posing. Well, they weren't, really. They were just, it was just a fun image thing. You know, they just wanted, they really wanted, what they really wanted was, like, success, which they never got. The Ramones were never famous like they are now. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely, it's so funny to think about. And um, they were just, 
trying as hard as they could to get a hit, which they never got. Never. Never got a hit record. You know, sold a million times more records when they were all dead, except for the only one alive now is Tommy. The only original one. Marky is the second drummer. He's still alive. But Johnny and Dee Dee and Joey are gone. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, they, they never had that kind of success when they were around. They were just the most fun of those bands to me. There was no comparison. There's there some bands that were okay to me that were... I thought the Saints were good. They're an Australian band um, who were a punk band. Um, they had a song called Stranded. I thought they were really good. I mean, that song was really good. I don't really know the Saints music, but I liked that one. Um, I liked a couple of Dead Boys records. I thought they were pretty good. But um, I honestly don't know if you could name a hundred punk bands. And I, I saw them and I can't remember. I just didn't care about it that much. It was It was not... It was just kind of like the Ramones did songs that were short to the point and they, they had hooks. You know, Sheena is a punk rocker. Sheena is, you know, or a Beaton the Brat. Beaton the Brat. You know, it's like, <laughs> hey, you know, that's what you want to hear, you know. And plus they did really cool covers, of, you know, California Sun, you know, they did, which I think is on an advertisement now uh, in, you know, 2014. It's pretty amazing. Um, I mean, not the Rivieras, the original version, but the Ramones version. You know, so they did really good covers of great pop songs. Um, anyway, I was a big, big fan. I think your question was what made them stand out and, or something like yeah, that. I mean, just like to you, yeah. Jerry Everything Matt, about them was different than all those other bands. They, they got up there in matching outfits, which I loved. You know, uh, to me, that's, that's how a band presents itself. Um, this was all thought out, and I when I say thought out, about, I was as a put down to that other stuff. It was I just meant kind of it wasn't intellectual. It was just a showbiz decision, you know. I know that Danny Fields, who's a really good friend of mine, who managed them, they wrote a song called "Danny Says" about Danny. But Danny told me that they um, saw a picture. I don't know what they they were trying to think of a name for the band, and there was like a cigar store. They were walking by in Times Square, and I think Danny, I don't know if he was with them or whatever, but they just said, oh, that's cool. It was like Ramon Cigars or something like that. Okay, we're going to be the Ramones. You're going to be Dee Dee Ramon. You're going to be Johnny Ramon, you know. And that was, okay, that's fun. We're like a little, you know. And uh, Johnny was really good at what he did playing the guitar. He did very particular style. He did not, he always played a Mose right. He always played it through a Marshall. He always played it the way he played it. And every stroke, people don't know this, musicians don't know this, and Johnny was very particular about this. He talked about people trying to imitate the Ramones, which a zillion bands did. Every stroke was a down stroke with his right hand. Um, musicians, guitar players will know what that means, but it's especially when you're doing fast stuff as fast as they did it. That's, that's something. He was going all down strokes, not up and down. It was all down strokes. And that's part of his sound. He was, and Dee Dee was learning how to play the bass, but it was that's kind of good because he he wasn't capable of doing anything fancy, so he could only hit the root notes. So that helped with their sound. Tommy was already a really good drummer, and he was the actually the leader of the band originally. Um, and Tommy, I love the way he played the drums. I thought he was a really great steady drummer. Never did a drum roll. Never messed around. Never did anything except keep the beat, which is the best thing you can do. I loved him. I thought he was great. And Joey had this unique voice, this very unusual presence. And, uh, and um, 
they made for a, a really fun experience. Uh, Jonathan Richmond, who's my oldest friend in the world, really, uh, was the first guy, according to Danny and according to Danny Fields and according to the Ramones, to dance to the Ramones. I was with him that night because uh, people didn't dance, you know, these things. Was it like too cool? Yeah, it was very posy in Considered very uncool, right. I mean, you, don't, you didn't see people at a CBGB show, you know, listening to television, uh, <laughs> you know, dancing. That didn't happen. You know, they were not dancing because it wasn't done. But there was a club in Central Square in Cambridge, Central Square. And the name of the club was The Club. And um, it's a really good place, really good club. Paley Brothers played there. That's why I know it. But I also went to see the Ramones on their first Boston gig, which was at the club. In It's called The Club in Central Square. And I went with Jonathan <coughs> Richmond, and Jonathan was dancing by himself because even the Boston punks didn't really know what to make of it. And Jonathan got going and then other people started dancing. But it was like the first person to ever dance to the Ramones, according to the Ramones and according to Danny Fields, was Jonathan Richmond, which is fun, fun rock and roll trivia fact, <laughs> you know, I guess. Uh, it's great. You know, uh, somebody else could come along and say, no, it was me. I danced before Jonathan, but, but I did witness that. It was me, even though I never... Oh! Oh! oh. Did that uh, hurt your ears? Yes. We need Sorry. to wrap it up. Okay. If that's acceptable. Yeah. Uh, I just... Uh, once again, what is the album, work, uh, the reissue, and where can they find it, and other work of yours? Oh, just um, um, listen to the Thrilling Adventure and Supernatural Suspense Hour podcasts. And or go see it. Go see that show. Yeah, that's your your music. I do music for the Thrilling Adventure show, yeah. Um, and Annoying Orange. Annoying Orange... Um, yeah, go watch Annoying Orange. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> try to watch Annoying Orange during the Thrilling Adventure show <laughs> while you've got maybe <clears throat> two sets of headphones and the other one could be listening to the Paley Brothers um, complete recordings. Is uh, the reissue of the Paley Brothers on vinyl by chance? I wish it was, and someday it will be, but no. Right now it's a CD, and you can, or you can download songs, but I mean... Yeah, you know, buy the CD. Because if you do, I make a dollar and my brother makes a dollar. So that's more than if they buy it on Amazon. Or... I don't know. No, that's well. No, then they'd only be buying. Well, I guess yeah, if they bought the whole thing. I'd but the, they should buy the. Matt, don't make it complicated. <laughs> I was going to say they should buy the CD because the liner notes are oh, incredible. Yeah. Sure. I mean, yeah. because there's who Deborah Harry, Jerry Blavitt, the Geeter with the heater uh, from Philadelphia, Brian Wilson, Debbie Harry. Gene Scalati, all kinds of Lenny. Yeah, it's, K, it's Lenny crazy. K. Yeah, a lot of people wrote about us, which we which we appreciated. Yeah, so definitely buy the CD and read the liner notes. Get a flashlight and a magnifying glass, and go. Or if you could find a monocle, and <laughs> what I suggest, get a cape. Buy a cape at a costume shop. Get a monocle and a flashlight. Or actually, get a miner's helmet. And wear this stuff to the Thrilling Adventure show at Largo. During the Thrilling Adventure show, turn on the Miner's Helmet hat and read the liner notes to the Paley Brothers album during the show. <laughs> and make sure you're sitting next to Ben Acker and Ben Blacker, who write it. And then when I come on, give me a big round of applause. I'd appreciate it. Thank you. I'll, I'll know who you are by your outfit. Thank you, Andy Paley. You're welcome, Matt Dwyer. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor and uh, go to my page at feralaudio.com and uh, donate some money, uh, just a dollar, five dollars, whatever you can afford. It would help us out. It keeps our website going. Uh, it keeps the lights on in our studios. 
Uh, if you can't afford to donate, I understand you can go to uh, the Amazon pay th- uh, thing on my page. And the next time you buy some things on Amazon, I get a kickback of that money. Just go through the Amazon link on my Feral Audio page. And that really, really helps us out a lot. Also, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer at Twitter. You can also email me at conversations with Dwyer at uh, Gmail. And uh, review my show on iTunes, please, and listen to other shows on Feral Audio. And as my one of my first guests, uh, uh, Pete O'Neill said, "Power to the people." Thank you very much. I love you. Thank you for listening. Recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.